0: Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Bodo Knudsen, Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs and Director of Endourology and Stone Disease at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. The topic we chose is where are we with minimally invasive office procedures? All right, so Bodo, what prompted this was uh, uh, I read with interest in the AUA news your recent experience with a disposable stent graspers and such, and I I thought it might be nice for our listeners to kind of get an idea of where we are with minimally invasive office procedures. I think the first question and kind of to, to start all the discussion that we have would really be just what, what was the impetus for you to start doing traditional OR procedures in the office uh, and and how can we kind of adopt that to our own practice?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting story because I think it goes... Um, all the way back to when I started at, at Ohio State, um, quite a few years back, um, you know, 14 or 15 years now I've been here. So when I was recruited to Ohio State um, f- to kind of develop a kidney stone program there, um, the infrastructure was very different from where it is now. At that time, you know, we had the main university OR Um, That's kind of had all the inefficiencies that that we see in big ORs, you know, long turnover times, hard to get a lot of cases done and just not a great place to do um, simple things like stent placements and short um, ureteroscopy cases. So that, um, even before I arrived, immediately um, drove the decision that we needed to come up with something different. And at that time, there wasn't an option to have a surgery center. So we wanted to model something um, in our clinic. And I did my residency uh, in Canada and my fellowship uh, with John Densett also in Canada. Um, so I had a fair bit of experience with doing things outside of the OR because in the Canadian system, um, the OR is a big limiter. It's hard to get time. So you have to be innovative and do things. So we were doing shockwave lithotripsy in our in our clinics during residency. And we were actually doing um, distal um, ureteroscopy. Um, Dennis Hosking has published on that. He was our uh, head endourologist when I trained. And uh, it was really lucky that I had that chance to work under him. So that was kind of a model I wanted to bring to Ohio State. Um, so what we did is um, we carved out a space in our clinic, and we bought a um, Shockwave Lithotripter. At that time, it was the uh, the Storz uh, F two system, which was quite new, uh, which doubles as a full cysto table. And it allowed us to do shockwave lithotripsy, allowed us to do um, um, second look nephroscopies. It allowed us to do stent placements, it allowed us to do distal stones all in the clinic. And we modeled um, the sedation after um, what interventional radiology and GI do where um, the, um, the surgeon uh, uh, does the sedation with, uh, with fentanyl and Versed. So we created a model based on that. Um and there's a lot of things to consider you know to when you want to do all of that so um, we had to make sure that the faculty who were working in that area um, were credentialed um, and most hospitals will have a credentialing process for that usually means you have to have ACLS and, and airway training. And then you also have to have um, appropriate nursing staff that can um, monitor patients um, during sedation, um, similar to the nurses that would be an IR or in a GI endoscopy suite. So those, those pieces have to be in place. Um, But once we had that, it was fantastic. So uh, we did our shockwave cases. Um, we were connected to the hospital, so when uh, somebody was on call and there was a patient that needed to get a, a stent placed, as long as they weren't crashing and unstable, we could bring them down to the clinic, and whoever was in the clinic could quickly get stents placed, so uh, way easier than, than trying to book them and, and going to the OR. Um, when I was doing my PCNLs, and if I needed to second look somebody, I could bring them down, um, give them a little bit of fentanyl and Versed, and do their second look. Uh, with John Denstead in Canada, we were doing second looks in the clinic without sedation. So um, it was kind of a luxury to be able to do them with, with sedation uh, because we had that capability. And then distal stones. So um, people who had, you know, five, six millimeter distal stones that were fairly quick, we, we were able to successfully do those under, under um, sedation. And that helped us um, limit the uh, main OR for our big uh, complex cases.
0: And so um, you mentioned, you know, you direct a lot of the conscious sedation and administration of uh, some of these medicines, uh, Bodo. What what type of training and or certification is needed for the urologist and your staff?
1: So OSU has a has a specific. Um, uh, I guess I would say like a protocol that has to be met. So there is a specific airway training that you have to go through at OSU and it's, um, led by, um, either anesthesia. Um, I did my training at the time with one of our ER docs, um, who did the training. So, you know, you have to know how to intubate, um, you have to know how to handle, uh, uh, sort of some of these difficult situations so there was a there's a specific course that you had to do um at osu and then you had to have your um your acls up to date so those were the two requirements and as long as you had those uh you you were able to um to administer it it's moderate sedation so it's a very specific category so that is very specifically fentanyl and versed so it's not propofol so like in the icus they'll they'll do propofol drips and stuff that was not we were not um Uh, allowed to do that. It was very specifically um, fentanyl and Versed.
0: We recently acquired nitrous oxide probably in the last five months or so uh, in our clinic, and um, uh, it's really helped out quite a bit uh, to uh, do a lot of these procedures in the clinic as well. What is your your comment on nitrous versus IV sedation versus local, and how do you foresee that a, a clinic might you know, might utilize those three options differently.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear actually your experiences with the nitrous as well. Um, we we didn't use it. Um, it does fall under a, a sort of a lower tier, right than the than the fentanyl inverse head, so the requirements to use it um, were lower. And we really didn't explore it having the option of the fentanyl inverse head. You know, I don't think we would have done shockwave lithotripsy or ureteroscopy under it, but uh, interested to hear how, how you're using it and what procedures you're doing with it.
0: Yeah, and, and I know you, you and I spoke, and there are not a lot of BPH procedures, I think, that, that you are engaged in, but we definitely use it for uh, a lot of the BPH, the minimally invasive BPH procedures, uh, even some of the stenting and, and maybe some of the more difficult rigid scopes we might have to do in the office, uh, maybe some of the more challenging uh, trust biopsies, you know, maybe even vasectomies and, you know, things like that. Those those don't really fall strictly under the minimally invasive office procedures, but uh, arguably those, those are not even really OR procedures per se. They're more kind of office procedures on steroids, if you will.
1: It sounds like it would be a nice kind of bridge in between, you know, doing the full fentanyl and Versed versus, you know, really not doing much at all. So, um, yeah, I think that that's potentially a great option. There are some other things, you know, with moderate sedation, you have to have the medical gases available. And, and this may be a, that might be a simpler solution for people.
0: So you, you mentioned, you know, in the Canadian system, I don't honestly know a lot about the billing practices and some of the financial aspects. When I was a fellow in San Francisco, we were able, you know, we, our clinic was attached to the hospital. So we could bring patients down for second looks and, and uh, Anagrades grades and things like that that you mentioned, in those clinics that might be detached or not necessarily fall under the inpatient umbrella, are there billing or, or uh, reimbursement challenges that you've found as far as taking some of these inpatients down to your clinic, or do you still do all of these strictly as outpatients?
1: Yeah, you know, it gets complicated, I guess, depending on on the setup. Um, for us, um, it was a, a hospital based clinic. So it really wasn't an issue. We built the professional fees um, and the hospital owned the equipment. So um, really not that that much different. You know, if you're doing it in your own clinic off off site, it would be a little bit different because um, then you would be able to bill the, the additional fees that go with it, but you wouldn't be able to transport patients from the hospital where it gets very interesting though, is the equipment itself. So because this is, was initially set up as a hospital based clinic, we had support um, from the hospital for the, for the actual equipment. Um, and that's where there's, you know, significant costs. So um, you know, our shock with lithotriptor obviously was a major purchase, but the, uh, the ongoing issue was the maintenance contract. You know, it's close to $100,000 a year for the maintenance contract for it. So you have to be using it a lot to to make it worthwhile to support that. And and in fact, when we moved our clinic offsite, so some years back, we moved to, uh, to a new clinic offsite Um, We evaluated our maintenance contract and we found that it actually was no longer worthwhile to have the shockwave lithotriptor in our clinic because uh, we didn't feel we would utilize it enough um, in that setting. And, And the main reason was we now had access to a surgery center. So the building we moved into where our clinic was housed we had a surgery center on the first floor, so a lot of the things that we had been doing in the in the office, um, we now had a had a great facility with twelve minute turnover times to 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 uh, to get things done. So it, it made it less. Um, attractive to do them, to do them ourselves. And, and the same, same goes with other equipment, right? If you look at your, your endoscopes, you know, how much they, they cost to purchase, but probably more importantly, how much they cost to repair. Um, You have to be very careful with your math because it can get very expensive very
0: quickly. I'm glad you brought that up. I was actually just going to maybe touch on the point of, you know, where do you see the disposables come into all of Uh, the capital equipment costs are, are quite expensive for, a clinic to purchase. When you have a hospital or or university or or something like that behind you to to foot some of those bills, it might make it somewhat more attractive. But where do you see the the disposable cystoscope, disposable sleeves that they have for cystoscopy, uh, disposable graspers, which I know you're you're certainly uh, on the forefront of, even disposable ureteroscopes in the clinic. are, Are those would those be more financially sound or is is the verdict still out?
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, there's been, you know, a number of cost analysis uh, papers that have come out and it's, you know, looking at the upfront costs, but then also the hidden costs and the human resource costs that, that go with reprocessing things. But, you know, I think what, what we've learned is um, it's closer than we think, you know, I think, Um, using reusables is is probably more expensive than than we uh, initially thought and because it isn't just that upfront cost it's the you know ongoing maintenance of it um the processing and the and the challenge for a you know a small department if you own it is when the repairs come up and if you don't have any sort of service plan you know those the the cost of service sometimes is almost as much as buying a new scope you know and those can really um create major, major distress with your budget. You know, everybody wants to know what their, what their fixed costs are, but when you start to throw, um, you know, these unexpected expenses, it, it, it causes a problem. So I think that's the nice thing with, with the single use is, you know, you can kind of draft out your budget and know what your costs are going to be for the year, roughly based on, based on your volume. Um, so I, I do think, um, that's the direction we're probably, um, um, heading, uh, you know, as long as the um, the the cost is pretty close. And when we did our study looking at the single-use stent grasper, it was almost a wash. You know, I think there, it was just slightly more expensive to use the single-use, but, you know, we also have the luxury of having our reusables um, kind of piggybacked off a hospital maintenance contract. And if we didn't have that, that it would be a kind of a slam dunk for the the single use.
0: And is there opportunity for reimbursement for the single use in the clinic environment yet or not?
1: I, I don't believe that we could actually bill additional on top for it. That's my understanding. So, you know, you would have to capture, you know, with your other fees, but there, yeah, we would, we are not charging anything more out to the patient because
0: we're using a single use product. And then how do you see residents and trainees fit into this office model? You have fellows, you have residents, you have medical students. Do they go to participate in the office procedures as well?
1: Yeah, it's, it's uh you know, definitely you want them to, and you want them, uh, you know, to get that experience so that hopefully they can, you know, take that to their to their own practices. You know, I think for the most part it, it works pretty well. You know, having gone through it as a as a resident, um, I would say it elevated the PGY level of the procedure a little bit. So whereas you know typically PGY twos are doing ureteroscopy in the OR. Uh, when you were doing them under sedation, it became a little bit more of a like a PGY four procedure when I was a resident uh, sure. because you had to get it done very quickly and you know you couldn't you couldn't really struggle. So from that standpoint, but um, it was still a great learning experience as a resident. And you know if I hadn't gone through it as a resident, I would have never you know done it as a as an attending. So so yeah, I think it's uh, it's a great uh, a great opportunity. And as we know, a lot of our residents are going into areas where, where they are going to be able to do these um, procedures in an office-based setting and be most efficient doing them there. So getting that experience, I think, is very important.
0: Well, this has been really, really great, Bodo. I appreciate your time. I think before we wrap up, I'd like to just ask you one more question. It's kind of the obvious wrap-up question for, for a topic like this, is where do you see the future of office urology? What do you anticipate we might be doing in five years, and what type of Anesthesia or, or you know, pain uh, reduction techniques will we be seeking and will be using?
1: I think there's a huge appetite for it. You know, I think um, anytime you can you can move things, you know, out of out of the big centers and into an office setting and be more efficient. I think that's going to be attractive to both the patient and, and to the urologist. So I think this area is going to continue to grow. You know, I think our equipment's going to continue to evolve. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, the BPH side we've seen, um, you know, with your and resume things growing, you know, certainly uh, on the stone side, Um, you know, as we move towards, you know, more disposable products, potentially smaller scopes, some of our laser advances, you know, we now have that the thulium fiber laser, which you can plug into any electrical outlet. Um, and use very tiny fibers with. So I think that's gonna open some doors that that we don't even know about yet. You know, the the sedation side, I think is still always a little bit tricky and some concerns with that, but I think there's also an opportunity to, to partner with anesthesia, you know, um, you know i think a, a larger group practice could you know employ an anesthetist in their office as well so i think you know we urologists are a creative bunch and i think finding um, you know creative solutions to some of this is is going to continue to allow us to to grow this area
0: that's a great insight bodo we really appreciate your participation and uh, thank you very much on behalf of richard wolf the endourological society and the journal of endourology Uh, I want to thank Dr. Bodo Knudsen from Ohio State University and uh, spending his time with us tonight.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.